Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. Um, I'm here with the ever-inspiring Griffin Longleaf, the CEO of Nature Play Western Australia. And this, I'll, I'll have to ask you about this, but it's the award-winning journalist as well. And TED Talk presenter, TEDx, Let Kids Take Risk, which I'd encourage anyone to head over and see. And the presenter of one of my favorite bits of information that I'm playing with right now, that more children are hurt falling out of bed than falling out of trees. So thanks so much for joining me, Griff. My pleasure, Lucas. Thanks for having me. Now, Nature Play, Western Australia, at the forefront, there's so many children currently and future that will have to thank you for the work and initiative you've taken and the impact you've made, not only in Western Australia, but right across Australia, getting this Nature Play movement moving. Um, and I've got to thank you personally for um, Nature Play Queensland. A huge part of what we do is teaming up with Nature Play Queensland and the great initiatives they have as well. So on a personal level, I've got to thank you for getting that ball rolling. So maybe we'll start there. How did Nature Play Western Australia come to be? Yeah, thanks, Lucas. And, and look, I've, I've got to say too that I've been amazed by what's happened in Queensland. You know, we've, we've done lots of work here and you know, done some work to get things started but you know the way you guys have picked up the ball and run with it has been really really inspiring and you've had some fantastic people on the ground doing stuff you know people like Leanne and Moza just so passionate and um and committed it's yeah. you know it's been fantastic to watch so look how it got started here really is that um our department of sport and recreation um had a little bit of an existential angst moment actually Lucas where they they realised that they'd been busily patting each other on the back for decades. Yeah. Um, you know, a conga line of backpacking, back patting going on um, because kids play lots of sport and, and kids are playing more sport now than ever before. So if you look at the, the graph on, on kids' participation in organised sport, it's, it's going steadily up and it has been for a while and that, that's always been a real positive and the Department of Sport here looked at that very, very happily. Um, but then, you know, back 10 years ago now, they, they recognised that despite that, there was another graph, which instead of going happily upwards, was going steadily downwards. Uh, and that graph described physical activity. So we had kids playing more sport than ever before, but, but doing less physical activity than ever before. And, you know, parallel to that, you know, there was the obesity and overweight and obesity problem that we're, is well documented and we, we see around us and there was you know a growing wave of, of kids with anxiety disorders and and other kinds of mental health disorders you know 14 percent of Australian kids diagnosed with a mental health disorder so for all that back padding there was a lot going wrong and um, they kind of twigged to the fact that 
the big problem wasn't so much what happens in all of our organized stuff for kids, you know, the football training, the, the school camps, the, the school classes, all that's kind of been the same for a very long time. But what's changed is what kids do or don't do in their spare time. Yep. And so they had this moment of thinking, well, maybe we actually need to start talking about play, not just talking about sport. And um, yeah, so that was that was the kickoff, and I was busily writing for the West Australian pre-internet, pretty much. So that's why you're not finding anything. Um, we had the internet, of course, but um, most of our content wasn't online at that stage. The yep. internet in the West Australian newsroom was described as a fad that would never really take off <laughs> at that point. Um, so yeah, I was writing for the West and, and writing columns, and I was increasingly writing about. You know, this change in society and what it means for families and what it means for kids and you know I had a very free-range childhood myself and took lots of risks lots of lots of explorative creative you know risks with my brothers and with our friends and not the kind of risk taking that you, you think about with you know cars or drugs yeah. or any of those things these were, these were playful little kid out and about falling over kind of risks yeah and really um that really led me to want to see it sort of brought back for other kids so i got involved with the department of sport and recreation and nature play was kind of born out of that and um from from to you, you touched on it briefly there um your childhood um anyone yeah. can go into it more they can um head over to your tedx talk um and discover that but um, can you give us, a, for our listeners, an overview of where you played as a child? Yeah, sure. It's always fun to reminisce. It's a, it's a good, fun thing to do, sit down with your, with your friends and do it. Um, so look, for me, I grew up in um, a very urban environment. So living in Fremantle, sort of port city, um, old buildings, all sort of all buildings jutted up against one another in a, in a port. Dad is an architect, so we lived in a sort of converted warehouse. No other families, so just me and my brothers mucking around. We ended up, we did a lot of playing on the roofs of the buildings because, you know, we could get from our bedrooms up onto the roof and from our roof, we'd get onto the next door neighbour's roof, which was a, a dentist, and then from there across to the next one. We had the whole block of roofs was our playground. Yeah, it was great. And then we'd get across into the, the fishing boat harbour. We'd make little rafts with bits of foam we found. We'd catch crabs that tasted like diesel. Um, yeah. we, we sort of try and find water rats underneath the, the main jetty of the, of the Fremantle main wharf. Um, and just tearing around, you know, we also had this great thing, Lucas, which is probably our most nature play uh, thing that we did. We only did it a few times, probably half a dozen times, but our dad would put us in a dinghy with a, a little 12 speed Evinrude horse, 12 horsepower on the back and set us up the river. And the, the aim was to go as far as you could go before the snags in the right in, in the, the river stopped you going any further. Yeah. So we went through Fremantle, past Perth, up past the Swan Valley and the wineries um, until we sort of got to a point where there was farms and then we'd stop and camp. Yeah. We'd light a fire, you know, occasionally we might find the occasional grape to eat along the way. <laughs> Um, and we'd camp for three or four days. Wow. And this is us, me, as about an eight-year-old. Wow, that's um, awesome. 
12 and 14 and be out there camping. We'd come back in, you know, as long as the outboard didn't break down, which it did a couple of times and we'd have to be rescued. <laughs> but, you know, just free ranging, um, a lot of trust from parents, a lot yep. of, not a lot of fear in, in about the community, you know, really quite trusting of neighbours. Yeah. And um, it always amazes me the diversity in answer when I ask that question to the guests that we have come on from yeah. um, schoolyards to abandoned mines to <laughs> all, yeah. you couldn't make the stuff up. Um, and yeah. I, ha I haven't had a playground yet, which is interesting. Um, yeah. Based yeah. on that adventure, what do you think is, um, what's changed of someone yeah, that's it's, reflected it's a, on this so much as you have? Yeah. Look, I actually think it's a pretty complicated picture. I don't, I don't think there's a, a single thing that you can point to. Yeah. But I think one of the big things is fear. And it's, um, you know, we're marinated in it as parents now in this generation in ways we haven't been. And, you know, when I think about it, there's nothing entirely scientific about this, but when I think about it, I imagine, you know, us having pretty primitive brains, really. And, you know, brains that were formed in a time when, our fear response was triggered by things that happened near us. You know, there was, um, if you heard about a, a wolf pack taking a kid, it happened pretty close. Yeah. You know, you weren't hearing about that from 4,000 miles away. Yeah. You were hearing about it pretty close. And so you would have a, a fear response, which would put you on hypervigilant and, you know, your, your cortisol levels would rise and all that, all that stuff would happen. And, I think we've still got that same Stone Age risk management system, um, which is cortisol and, and fear. Cortisol is the risk, the um, the stress hormone that we get when when we feel under threat. So, I think we get that still, and and we get it in a digital world where we're hearing about every bad little thing that happens all over the world, yeah. twenty four hours a day, and it's not just once. You know, we hear about you know, the 10-year anniversary of a kid being taken, yeah. you know. Um, and we're just, we're soaked in things that just trigger that physiological response. So we're just kind of always on edge. And I think, I think that has a huge impact. Look, it's, it, that's coupled with a whole bunch of other stuff, you know. So yeah. we've, we've got busy roads with two tonnes of steel and glass whipping past at 70 kilometres an hour. Um, you know, we've got a lot of movement between populations. So you don't, grow up in a suburb where four generations or five or 10 or 20 generations of your family have lived. Yeah. You, know, you, you live in proximity of people who have recently moved there or you've recently moved there. So those kind of baked in cultural, social, community, trust mechanisms, yeah. they're kind of not there. Yeah. So, and then we're working longer hours and gender roles are changing and that's a, a fantastic thing, but it does, bring complications with, with raising kids, you know, who's who's responsible for making sure that, you know, Johnny, when he goes out to play with his mates at four o'clock, is back at 5.30. If you're both working full time, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, a whole bunch. the irony about that, what just came to me then was that um, we've moved to a state of that passive isolation in a time of enforced isolation. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah the conflict of that is by being 
forcibly isolated under these COVID-19 circumstances. I've actually observed so many people in our neighbourhoods actually connecting. And I've actually done that with within my neighbourhood, our children being going on more adventures, us being with them or... Yeah, look, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing that you've been seeing, Lucas, with, with people getting out and about now in a way they haven't before. Um, and when I think about that, uh, one of the things that really triggers for me is just the fundamental truth about being a human being is that we've got really quite poxy little blunt teeth you know, and, and we can't fly and, and we're, we're weak um, compared to other animals and certainly compared to insects. But what we've got, what makes us special, what's allowed us to thrive is that we communicate and we can pull together as a community. And what I'm seeing happening in this COVID-19 crisis is that we're feeling that threat and we're drawing on our, our mechanism, our survival mechanism, which is community. So we're, we're looking to each other, we're, we're pulling together. And so you're seeing families out and about, you're seeing them stopping and talking to other families. You know, even the interactions you have at shops when you go out to them, there's this level of we're in this together. And that's yeah. very much a survival mechanism. And it's, it's really quite a beautiful thing. And it's something I'm really loving seeing as an unintended consequence of this drama. Yeah, and that's a great point you make. An observation there is that that same biology that creates that fear response that pushes us apart because it's, it's not real. And the real fear or for something that is actual tangible and happening actually drives us together. And the stuff that's not real, that's all made up in our head actually drives us apart. So (laughs) there's a little, maybe I'll use that as a reflection. If it's driving me away from people, I'm making it up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's a good point. Um, And another one is that not being able to escape that biology, the fear response of, or the protection effect for our children. And, you being a father, how do you personally overcome that nature? It's just a part of nature for us to fear and respond to it. How do you deal with it? Yeah, um, it's a really hard one. Um, You know, you go through emotional gymnastics every time you're separated from your child and you don't know what they're doing. I mean, it describes having children as like having your heart on the outside of your chest. You know, uh, I think it's very real. So I don't think we're going to be able to, I certainly can't switch that off. Yeah. And I don't think it's something we can ask, realistically ask parents to switch off. You know, it's not, you can't tell someone the statistics and say, look, realistically, your kid would have to sit on that street corner for 20,000 years before there was a chance that they might get picked up by a stranger, a high chance. Um, so don't worry about it. it. It just doesn't work that way. So I think what we what we have to do is think beyond our fear rather than try and turn it off. Yeah. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, the, the best definition of risk, I think, is that a risk is something that puts in jeopardy your, obje- your objectives. Yeah. So it's not just are you going to get hurt or not, it's are your objectives threatened by this thing? And if, if they are, then, then it's a risk. So you can have risks to lots of different kinds of things. But when you think about risks like that, the first question is, what are my objectives? You know, and that's such a fundamental thing for a kid because if your only objective for your kid is that they 
gets to the end of the year or their lives without being injured or you know if it's all about safety that's very limited and and you know you've actually got little control over it anyway but but if your objectives are broader than that if your objectives include things like wanting your child to grow up um, you know with a sense of wonder with a sense of curiosity if you want your kid part of your objectives is for your kid to know what it means to be loved you know if, if part of your objective is that you you want your kid to be resilient you know and there's all this sort of broader stuff so then yeah. risks are things that get in the way of those yeah. not just might make you know hurt their knee yeah and um when it comes to something I love to share with educators and parents is that some children will be more inclined to take the physical risk and be expo expose themselves to that um, challenge, but we overlook the emotional risk. So that ties nicely into the objective. The obje objective for that child might be to be social and the risk is yeah. the um, yeah. exposure. Um, Another one that ties so nicely into a guest we had on recently called Jason Gibson from the States. And he was linking that into um, family values, like three family values, and that could be tied into your three family objectives. Um, so that might be something to go away and do as a family, come up with those yeah. objectives as and core values as a family. And whatever's yeah. breaking those, take action. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And look, the reality is too that we, we do overcome our fear every day. Yeah. You know, when we get in cars, when there's all sorts of things we do that that risk put our you know our physical selves at risk. And one of the classics for me is um, you know, if you think about a pure risk assessment in terms of injury, you would never ever dream of sending a kid out into the world, into school with a slip knot tied around their neck. Yeah. You wouldn't do it. It's called a tie. Yeah. You know, people <laughs> who you know, schools do it every day. Yeah. But, you know, the, the objective that they're looking at there is they wanna, they've got things that are important to them about how they think a kid, what an education looks like and being ready for the workforce and all, all, all that stuff. So they're, they're choosing for those objectives to take precedence over, you know, a, you know, a potential safety hazard. Yeah. Um, but I think we do actually do that all the time, but we just have to consciously start doing it more and doing it around letting kids have some freedoms. But it's, it's not going to take the fear away, but it's just a conscious choice to weigh that freedom against our other objectives for our children. Yeah. Yeah, a great example is the um, like surf programs, living by the coast and going to school, and then yeah. you're like, let's do surfing for sport. What's your rate? You've got like one teacher for thirty people, kids surfing, and that's fine. But then if you were to have like a hammer and a nail for one child, they're freaking yeah. out. Oh, yeah, it's a crap. Yeah, but yeah. on the positive side, you being engaged with this topic so heavily for ten years now. Um, you would have seen surely things change over time. Um, what are some of the big standouts you've seen in the last 10 years over in a positive movement in the field of risk? Yeah, I mean, look, there's some, um, some really broad ones, like the, the conversation has changed, which is huge. You know, the way people talk about 
childhood and about play has changed to for the positive. It's swinging back to it's not just always talking about how kids could get hurt and um, there really are some shifts on that front. But beyond the talk, um, how I'm seeing it shift is I'm seeing as a really practical example, I'm seeing sticks in schools. Yeah. So if you visit 10 schools in Western Australia at the moment, five of them, there'll be a cubby building area with sticks. Yeah. And it's gone from put that stick down, you take someone's eye out, you you naughty boy, you naughty girl, put that stick down to kids actively being encouraged to pick a stick up and build a little cubby. Yeah. And, you know, it, it seems like a small thing in some ways, but to me, that's a real shift in the way people are thinking about children and the way they're valuing different elements of childhood. So that's a big one. Um, I'm also seeing more and more families really making an active choice to be an outdoors family. Because, yeah. you, you know, when you've got kids, you kind of intentionally or just by happenstance at some point you make a decision about what kind of family you're going to be like are you going to be a football family or a a game boy family or whatever it is yeah and i'm seeing more and more families who are going down the road of being outdoor families yeah and their real pride and and real pleasure in getting outside yeah really um always weighed on my mind so that's been about you know, you, you go to the States and we've, we met up in the States and um, at the Children mm. and Nature Network conference and seeing so many of the participants there and a real culture in these communities about trekking and wilderness. And then I come back to Australia, I was like, we have access to this stuff. It's amazing. And yet we don't really have that culture around it for some reason. But the silver lining is with the isolation, things like the backyard camp out and parents taking that little step to get more in, involved and families talking about going on treks and going on hikes now. So why do you think it is in Australia we don't have that culture of hiking and outdoors yeah. when we have it? Yeah. Look, I know in, in Western Australia a part of that is that there is no stable West Australian community. So in Perth, 55% of the people who live here were born somewhere else. Yeah. And that's that's it's great. I love the diversity that we have. I love the freshness that that brings. But it means that our community is constantly morphing and changing. Um, and you've got a lot of people coming in who aren't familiar with the place. You know, with the they don't know how to be in a desert area. They they don't know is it safe. You know, a classic example, Lucas, is um. A woman who used to work for Nature Play in the early days here, uh, she came over from uh, Canada with her family and um, got a job with us. And she lived in a beautiful leafy suburb, right house, right smack bang onto a little park. And the park was empty of kids every day. Yeah. And the way she described it is for the first you know weeks that they were there, she thought there must have been snakes or crocodiles or dropped bears or, or something in that park, because it must have been unsafe, or where, why weren't the kids there? Yeah. Um, eventually, she figured out that the drop bears weren't there. And um, her response was really interesting, because what she did was she 
walked around the neighborhood um, with her kids and introduced herself and her kids to her neighbors and said, my name's Nicole, these are my kids. We're gonna be in the park every day after school till 4.30. If you've got kids, it'd be great if they came out. And that park is now full of kids every single day. So, you know. So simple. It's about, yeah, it's simple, but it's, it's about actively, we have to actively shape our community because it's changing all the time. Yeah. We don't live in a village in Sweden where, you know, everyone, people have been there for 30,000 years. That culture, we've got a culture here that's been here for nearly 80,000 years. Yeah. But we've got on top of that, we've got the really high flux, ever-changing, quite fearful of, of the outdoors because it's new to them, you know, people from elsewhere. Yeah, that's such a good observation. And that summarises this, uh, the default of comparing what we do here to, like, but in Finland or in this country, they do it this way and they don't have a problem. So, yeah, yeah, with being such a young country, we do have to be conscious of that. So that's a really great point. Um, leading into and leveraging on that, the, the movement in Western Australia and the uptake my observation over the years has been phenomenal as well. Just looking at the amount of, if you go to Maggie Dent's website and the amount of Nature Place schools on her website and that gallery and the amount of content that um, you're sharing on the Nature Play Western Australia page. And if you haven't already, head over there. The link will be in the show notes. Head over. The blog's amazing. The resource, the amount of resources pages on that that website's phenomenal. There's no excuse not to be able to get inspiration, some really good content to share with your families. How have parents and the education, like schools relationship changed over the years? We've covered that. We've seen those more children engaged, but where do you think it's going to end up? Where's it going? Yeah, I really don't know. Um, I guess my greatest hope is that we shift the equation just a little bit. And by that, I mean, if every year, every month, things get just a little bit worse, where in terms of kids' freedom and their ability to, to grow into resilient, creative, brave human beings, if that gets a little bit worse all the time, if we knock, chip away at that a little bit, we're headed for disaster. Yeah. And I think that was where we were going. But if we just turn that equation to be 1% to the positive, we're just a tiny bit each month, each year, things just get a little bit better, then it's just a matter of time before we're in a super positive place. Yeah. But I think we have to allow it to be incremental and we have to, we have to really enjoy the increments and to you know, celebrate them and not feel like because everything isn't how we want it to be that the world's doomed. Yeah. You know, just I think the recipe for action and for positivity is to be incremental and to celebrate every little step because we've got time. We, we just need the time to bring reward not bring disaster so just shift you if you're a parent just change one little thing just just bring in one little change um, and what will happen is that 
that change, if it's a change towards spending more time together and more time in nature, that reward, that, that change will reward you. You'll love it. It'll be powerful. And you'll want to make another little change. Yeah. But if you want to encourage, if you try and tell parents to change overnight from being indoor parents who, who use screens for a bit of babysitting because they're tired and you know, it's a tough job being a parent. And if you want, if you kind of guilt them a bit about that and then you tell them that tomorrow they need to go out and spend a week on a track and you know, catch their own food or any of that, you, it's just not going to work. Yeah. So my hope for the future is not so much about where are we going to get to, it's about right now and going forward just being incrementally positive about it. Yeah. And um, I was recently at an awards night and they were showing um, outdoor photos of like places where people can go to explore. And I was sitting there thinking, these amazing photos, but they might as well be Mars to a lot of families. Like there's like no, no way they're going there. But it is about those that are making those changes in the backyard. Yeah which make the difference. And I've seen it all through my neighborhood, just the amount of play that's happening yeah. outside and I'm seeing those parents leverage and just on the, the little area they have. Um, for the educators listening and specifically those in schools, because I think what's happening in nature play in Western Australia with the movement of schools, we're not seeing here in Queensland. We've seen a great movement through the early childhood sector, but the school's uptake of this has been much, much slower. Um, so what tips could you have for not only educators, but for me to encourage schools to take action and get more nature play in their schools? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, Lucas, because it's a uh, it's a chicken and the egg thing yeah. um and what i mean by that is i think if you speak to most educators about nature play and about risk and about outdoor learning most of them will tell you that they would love to do more of it yeah but they're being held back they're being held back either by the bureaucracy which is their the principal and the the forms they have to fill out for the department being held back by that the other thing that they'll say is that they're being held back by parents. They'll tell you that parents want homework and that parents um, might sue them if they do something and the kid gets hurt. Yeah. So as much as they'd love to make those changes, they can't because of community holding them back. If you speak to parents, they'll say, oh, I'd love for our school to do more risk and for there to be more outdoor play but the teachers are holding us back. The teachers are risk averse. Yeah. So there's kind of this game of Chinese whispers going on where everyone actually wants the same thing, but everyone thinks the other person doesn't want it and that they're the, they're the obstacle. So I think the biggest thing to get schools moving on this is to get parents to communicate to schools that they want it, and that they'll support them and that they've got their back. And if they do that, most schools will start making positive changes. And I think that's what's happened here. I think schools have been emboldened by the community build up and the community um, clear, tangible community desire for more outdoor learning. And then it's easy for teachers, you know, they, they want to, then they just start looking for, okay, well, that's great. 
how do I do it? What do I need? Yeah. So then you need to start feeding them some lesson plans and some resources and some professional development. But you can have all of that if they don't feel like the community's got their back, they won't do it. And that's fair enough. So um, I think the, the number one thing is getting that communication channel between schools and families happening. Yeah. Um, and have it, you know, let each other know what you're actually looking for. Yeah. And one I come up against all the time is that it's, yeah. it's another thing that they have to do when they've got so much to do already. It's a, from a teacher standpoint, it's another thing. How do you overcome that down over in Western Australia? Yeah, look, I think where it is overcome and it's not everywhere where it is, it's where people um, realize that it's not an either or thing. You know, it, it's not another thing. It's a really efficient way of doing what you're already doing. Yeah. You know, because the reality and all the research shows this and all the best education systems in the world demonstrate this, kids learn better when they're having fun and when they're outside. You know, the, the fight or flight response, which shuts us down to information, um, is largely dropped when you take kids outside. So, you know, for a lot of kids, sitting in rows and being spoken at and being demanded questions to be answered is quite a confrontational thing. Yep. Um, and for a lot of kids, it actually shuts them down. Um, when you get them outside and you end up shoulder to shoulder with them, sharing and experiencing, inviting them to think about that experience, then their potential starts opening up. So to your question, I think it's really, it's about a culture shift and, and helping people understand, helping teachers understand that it's not another thing, but this is a way to help you do it better. Um, and in, in a way that you'll enjoy more. Yeah. Thank you so much. Put a, what is so that's it? What easy Put a pin in it. Um, and what about the sector? And it can be like more, yeah. I know we've spoken <laughs> a lot about risk today, but nature play, anything. What's inspiring you in the sector right now? Is it a bit of content you've come across? Is it some stats? What would you like to share that inspires you? Yeah. Um, look, the thing that's inspiring me is, is the health sector, and this is pre-COVID-19, is seeing the way that um, the outdoors can be used and is being used to get positive mental health outcomes. Um, because I just think that feeds into so many things, Lucas. You know, if you're anxious and stressed, you're not in a position to learn. If you're anxious and stressed, you're not in a position to develop loving bonds with your family. You know, if you're anxious and stressed, you're not connecting to your neighbors. All of that stuff is so dependent on how we feel. And what's increasingly clear is that the simple act of being outside, and it doesn't have to be that Instagram you know, Karajini Falls, you know, yeah. anywhere outside, it helps break down those stresses and anxieties that let us do all the other things that we want to do. 
So, I mean, that's the thing that's really inspiring me. And it was actually, and we were just talking about the Scandinavian countries and, and how you can't always take what they do and import it directly here. But the, the thing that most inspired me recently was being at a, a hospital in Norway. And the, um, the psychologist, the child psychologist there, what had been for the last five years, she's been taking really sick kids out into the forest. And, you know, she's got kids on gurneys, you know, those beds with the wheels on them. She's got kids on gurneys catching fish off bridges. She's got kids who are coming up for heart surgery, lighting fires in the snow, you know. And what she's finding is that the, the need for using restraints in the hospital has absolutely plummeted. The use of painkillers is plummeting. The rate at which they can get those kids out of hospital is, is, is shortening. And when they need to bring those kids back for post-operation work and for, for other work, they're wanting to come back. They're excited to come to hospital. And this is a big inner city hospital with the equivalent of a pocket park with some trees in it yeah. and a little stream running through it. And they're using that to change the mental health outcomes of kids in trauma and kids, you know, facing upcoming trauma and it's working yeah and if you can do that with a pocket park and then you live somewhere like you know western australia would be the ninth largest country in the world if it was a country and we've got a population half the size of sydney yeah you know so we've got space got a bit of room yeah yeah even so yeah that's really inspiring me that's awesome and um what what are you working on that's inspiring you at the moment yeah, look, the, the thing that we're working on at the moment, well, the, the one that actually inspired me a lot that's just finished was our great backyard camp out. Yeah. And just put in a call out to families during COVID-19 to camp out in their backyard and you know, thousands of people doing it and you know, pictures being sent in of people camping in their front yard, people camping in their backyard, people camping on their balcony of their flat. Yeah. You know, people camping out in their garage, in their lounge rooms, and then posting messages to each other, you know, and saying, been great camping with you all. And, you know, just seeing that has been really inspiring. Um, the ongoing Outdoor Classroom Day campaign really inspires me, just seeing you know, we had 320,000 kids Amazing. take part last year around the country. That Seeing that kind of wave of enthusiasm, that, yeah. that's inspiring. Yeah, that's um, amazing work, Outdoor Classroom Day. Um, if you're interested in Outdoor Classroom Day, it will be in the show notes as well. And a previous episode is available with Kat Prisk as well. So head over to that one after you listen to this one. Um, yeah, I actually did that um, backyard camp out with my kids as well. And it was just such a fulfilling experience. And we were uh, Zoom calling my friends and their families and my my employees who were zooming in with their kids and sharing like damper recipes it was just like got my makeup done by my daughter which was great um and nails done my, my daughter's grown now i don't get my nails done near, nearly <laughs> enough anymore yeah and oh it was just like reflection i was like that's the best weekend i've had this year yeah. for by far yep. And we just sat out there. And even last night, we laid on the trampoline and 
the International Space Station was coming across. So we ducked outside to check that out. And um, I had the fire going yesterday and then my daughter could smell the smoke on me. And she goes, oh, you, you smell like our camp out. And I was like, how does that make you feel? She's like, so happy. She's six. She's six. And yeah. she's reflecting on that memory already. So yeah. thanks for that initiative. And I just know that. About that. Yeah. What I love about it too is that it, it's such a clear demonstration of the fact that you don't need that $80,000 car. You don't need the $40,000 trailer. You don't need the, all that stuff. And, and you don't need to schedule it for school holidays in two years' time. Yeah. You can just do really simple, cheap, free things with virtually no gear yep. at home anytime you want. So it's kind of de-escalating it all a bit, I think, is a really important part of it. It's Making like it, it doesn't accessible. have to be... Yeah, it doesn't have to be momentous. You know, the, the, the momentous thing is, is what happens from the simple thing it's you don't plan this momentous thing and and with that comes memories it's it's the little things for sure yeah definitely well griff thank you so much for your time today um and thank you so much for the work you and your team have done for so long and um excited about having having more catch-ups with you and seeing where this movement can end up and the amount of people that can be impacted you imagine now we'll reflect on this and there's was it the number of children for Outdoor Classroom Day, I'm sure in the years to come, will supersede that easily. Indeed. Well, thanks, Lucas. Great to chat to you and thank you for your work in the space. No dramas, mates. Thank you so much. Much love to the family. Get outside, go camping, keep having fun. Thank you so much. Go on, mate. Legend. Thanks, Griff. Thank you for joining us on another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. That was the inspiring Griffin Longley. If you want to follow and get more information on this podcast, head over to Nature Play Western Australia and also look up on YouTube um, Griffin Longley TED Talk um, for all the info there. Um, we, met, we spoke in the podcast about Outdoor Classroom Day. Link is below and I look forward to you joining us again for the next Play It Forward.